You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So we're going to read from uh, two readings, both from Joshua. Firstly, from Joshua chapter 13, uh, verse 1 to 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It's counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mirah that belongs to the Sidians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and to the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon towards the sunrise. From Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, Hermon, to the Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth, Maim, even the, city, even the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I've commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. We're going to keep reading, uh, flick over to Joshua chapter 21, and I'm just going to be reading the last few verses from verse 43, Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave Israel to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he sworn to their fathers. Not one of them... Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, we are in our penultimate week of our sermon series, Joshua, Strong and Courageous. And our task this morning is a mammoth one. We are covering chapters 13 through to 21. Uh, This whole section, though, actually deals with a very important issue for Israel, the allotment of the inheritance of the land. Now, quick note on the method, uh, because in chapter 14, verse 2, it says that their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. Um, It's worth noting that this method of discerning God's will was active right throughout scriptural history, even up until the apostles replacing Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1. But since Acts 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, we don't hear about lots being cast again to discern the will of God. Um, Because now we have the whole counsel of God in Scripture, Now we have His Holy Spirit directing us and guiding us and revealing God's truth to us so we don't need to go to these other strange methods of casting lots uh, to figure it out. It would have been um, sort of 
bunch of little sticks or something, you'd throw a bunch out, they'd land more so in one direction than another or some weird sort of magic trick like that. Um, thank God that's not how we make our plans. Thank God that's not how we learn to trust which way God's taking us. Um, otherwise, we'd all have to carry a weird little like, box of sticks around everywhere. Um, and every time we had to make a sort of fork in the road decision, lob them out somewhere and see what happens. Um, so this method of lots casting, it's incredibly foreign to us and that's fine. Because God in his mercy has given us a more blessed means of knowing his will and his way. We have his word. Uh, And as you read these portions this morning, you would be excused uh, if you found it very, very difficult. Um, Just to give us some sort of orientation for what's happening this morning, here's a picture of the land allotment. So um, you can see all these different uh, tribe names right throughout there. That's effectively what's being done um, this morning. Uh, That image probably doesn't make this section any more interesting to read. Um, Because for our modern Western ears and eyes... This piece of historical narrative, it's, it's dry, it's repetitive, it's full of details that are really difficult to care about. And so, as Dale Ralph Davis, the, the writer of the commentary I've been relying on mostly during this Joshua series, he says that this section especially, we must come to with the eyes of the Israelites. But to do that, we probably need to step back a little bit into their history. It's worth noting from the beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning of Genesis, it has been about the land. Uh, The ancient Hebrews were farmers, they were land workers, and so their their lens for understanding the world is completely um, compromised of the land. All the analogies used throughout Genesis are land-based. The huge concern all the way throughout the um, Old Testament is about the quality of the land. Maybe you're used to hearing uh, that phrase about a, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, what does that mean? Are we actually looking for a piece of land with flowing milk and flowing honey? No, it's talking about the quality of the land, the fruitfulness of the land. However, the nation of Israel under Abraham had no land to call home. God gives Abraham a promise of land and that sets in motion much of the history of the Israelites. And then when we come to this point in Joshua, the most significant factor once again is the land. They've been rescued from 450 years of slavery in Egypt. They've been brought through the wilderness years uh, and now they're in this place where God had promised them. They've witnessed God at work and now they are finally beginning to step into the fulfillment of this promise. And this is how we should be reading it, understanding uh, how all, what all of this means to these ancient Israelites. Now, maybe the best way we could think about this is to consider the great Australian dream of owning your own home. Uh, I remember when we finally got the keys to our place uh, in Dubbo, a house we built, um, which we got the keys three days before Sonny was born. Uh, So it was a chaotic time of moving our stuff in. But I remember how I was just going around this brand new house and just doing ridiculous things like putting hooks in places, putting like rubber dots on doors so they close quietly. Uh, I spent far too long at Bunnings buying... No, I don't apologise. You cannot spend too long at Bunnings. Um, It's God's gift to humanity. Um, 
And when we, try, when we try to see this section in a similar light, like this is something that people are walking into, they've been waiting on it, and now they're walking into it, they're finally getting to it, all of a sudden the details of this section start to become less monotonous and more inspiring. It's like when Hannah and I walked into that house, it was, it was plain, it was bland, there was nothing on the walls, nothing, uh, no furniture, nothing to make it look like it was ours. And then over those three days, we went about putting in our stuff, putting hooks in random places, uh, and making it our own. The details of our home became super significant and important to us, but probably not to too many other people. And so when we see through that line, the monotony seems to fade. The excitement of this section begins to come alive and the reality of the wrongs, the mistakes and the neglect really start to sink in. A very quick outline of this section to help us navigate Chapter 13 is like an introduction to the whole section with a brief history lesson and it reminds the reader of how Moses, uh, back before he died, gave an inheritance to the two and one half tribes. Uh, They had their allotment on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then chapters 14 through 19 deal with the actual allotment to the western tribes Uh, and then chapters 20 to 21 deal with the cities of refuge and the portion for the Levites. Um, most of our time this morning is going to be in these later chapters. Um, and we're going to work through this section by addressing it across three main points. One, Caleb's faith, Joseph's fear, and God's fulfillment. So point number one, Caleb's faith. Chapter 14 actually kicks us off with this incredibly high point uh, in all of this part of it. It's interesting and strategic that the author uses the details about Caleb. Um, He didn't have to. The section is about the allotment of land, and yet we hear a lot about Caleb. Open your Bibles, come with me to Joshua chapter 14, and I'm going to read from verses 6 through to 12. Um, As Mike said before, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift you one. Uh, Please see our welcome team afterwards. Um, And if you don't know how to read your Bible, if it's completely new to you, please come and talk to us about that as well. We'd love to help you read it, uh, understand it, and know God through it. Uh, Joshua 14, verses 6 through to 12. Then the people of Joshua, uh, Judah, came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you have heard on that day how the Anakim were there with their great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord said. Along with Joshua... 
Caleb was the only other guy back when Moses sent a bunch of guys across to spy out the land. He's the only other one who came back and brought a good report to Moses about going in and taking the land some 45 years earlier. And now Caleb is coming to Joshua to rightly claim what God had promised. But the contrast goes further because in chapter 15, verse 4, it tells us that Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. The author of Joshua is intentionally setting up Caleb as an example. The readers, the, the people of Israel, and now you and me today are tasked with reading this, hearing it, and following suit. There's this really interesting um, little bit of wisdom in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 and 12, where it says, For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do, as we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises." Caleb is one of those that we should be intimidating. He was set up as one of those who the Israelites should be imitating. Did I say intimidating? That was wrong. Imitating. Um, you're all with me. Uh, someone who patiently endured through years and years of unrest. Someone who, even though he trusted God, had to wait for the promise. Now, there's a, a small point to press here. And I say small because it's not like directly explicit from the text, but it's, it's uh, there in what is coming across from how the author is setting up the text. And it's worthwhile asking the question off, Caleb, off the back of Caleb's example to Israel, who are we imitating? Who are we looking up to for our example? Who are we watching and taking our cues from? Now, we are a blessed church. We've got so many people across the life of this church that all of us can be looking up to. No matter your age, no matter your background, there are just such a, a broad range of people across our church, so many people who have loved and trusted God through so many uh, things. And this morning, um, I wrote this earlier in the week, uh, but it's cool that they're here. I was thinking of Tim and Bev Forrest um, when I was thinking about people that we would look up to um, these guys have been through an incredible uh, journey over the last uh, year or two, um, and yet to time and time again, in conversations with them both, witness their continued trust in God's faithfulness to them, no matter the, the ins and outs, the, the unknowns of their situation. Um, Tim and Bev, you guys are incredible examples. Uh, thank you for trusting God. Thank you for showing us how to trust God, no matter the hardship that uh, we find ourselves in. Um, thank you for doing that. Thank you for being here this morning that I can say that directly to you instead of through a camera. Um, church, we have people like this right across our church. People who trust God. People who, despite the difficulties and their own failures and faults, continue to trust God that he is leading the way and making the way. And so the more, this morning, let's be encouraged to intentionally look to wiser more mature people, to mature relationships, uh, sorry, to nurture relationships with them, to glean from them, because sometimes we need people to help us see God's strength. 
to see how over time, throughout difficult and different situations, God remains the same, that he remains in control, sovereign, and that he is concerned for you and I resting in his goodness. This great example of Caleb's faith, his obedience and his trust. And we see as you read more of chapter 14 and 15, his completion in following through God's word, his complete reliance on what God has promised and what God has already done. This is then contrasted with Joseph's fear. The tribe of Joseph was made up of two groups, Ephraim and the half-tribe Manasseh. It was, Manasseh was split, and so half of Manasseh's tribe had already had its land allotted in uh, the other side of the Jordan. Chapters 16 and 17, they deal with this allotment, but it's quite the different story. The land is allotted to these tribes, but as chapter 16 verse 10 says, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. In fact, these people come back to Joshua and they complain. They complain that their land isn't big enough to house all of them and they also complain that the Canaanites that are there are superior in their strength and military might, that they've got chariots of iron, not chariots of fire, but chariots of iron. In chapter 17, 14 to 18, we see Joshua trying to encourage them to trust God, to go ahead, to deforest the land, to remove the Canaanites. But Joshua's words quickly turn from encouragement to rebuking them and challenging them. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 17, Joshua says to them, he says to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to the farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Joshua is trying to remind them of who God is. It isn't about the power and size of their enemy. It isn't about the, the amount of work that has to be done in clearing the land. He's trying to remind them of who their God is. They have already forgotten who fought their battles up till this point. That it was God who won those battles and not them. They've seen this in the past, but they've somehow already forgotten. They have lost sight. And so in fear, they they didn't remove the Canaanites from the land. They compromise, and eventually over time, as they grow stronger, we read a bit later, they make those Canaanites their slaves. For this story concerning the people of Joseph, of uh, both Ephraim and Manasseh, it's illustrative of what happens with many of the other tribes. As you read through chapters 18 and 19, you could easily, easily think that these tribes have it sorted. There's no explicit warning at the end of those sections uh, to make it easier for us. But if you do a bit of homework and you jump to the next book, Judges 1, you see that that's not the case. Most of these tribes fail to completely possess their lands. Judges chapter 1 verses 21 through to 36 detail the failure of Israel to completely obey God. And we're not going to read it now, but here's the summary. Judah failed. 
Benjamin fail. Manasseh fail. Ephraim fail. Zebulun fail. Asher fail. Naphtali fail. Dan fail. Pretty much all but Caleb, Joshua and the eastern tribes didn't completely realise what God had given into their hands. For the sake of you and I understanding how serious this is, turn with me to Judges, just the next book from Joshua. Judges chapter 2, reading verse 11 through to 15. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, that is, the the gods of the Canaanite peoples. And they abandoned the Lord, the, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from a God among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. These people, they compromise. They're they're lazy, they're complacency and it leads to complete corruption. What begins in this section of the narrative is this high point of Caleb now ends in this terrible low. And as we consider the failure of these tribes, we can't let ourselves off the hook because we also compromise in our trust in God. We also lose sight of his sufficiency through his promises and we also lose sight of the beauty of his internal inheritance waiting for his people. We're so easily distracted by the empty promises of this life. We work so hard to leave our children some sort of inheritance, but are we leaving them something they can't take to eternity? Are we investing in an inheritance that will build their faith in God or are we too busy building something that simply won't last? The answer, however, is not to just try harder. To try harder to know God's promises or to rest in them. The answer is to more intentionally be captivated by God's promises. We want to see how God's inheritance for his people is better than the world's. Because the world's got so many answers for us, doesn't it? It's got so many things that we can be attracted by, so many things to put our trust and our hope in. If I can work harder, earn more, buy that house, buy that car, have this bank account, have these clothes, have these friends, be in these social circles, uh, be invited to these particular things. If I can have all this stuff, I can set myself up or I can set my family up. I can give an inheritance or a heritage that looks good to others on the outside, but what's really happening to us on the inside? It's this contrast of, do we want the inheritance that God has for us, or are we more pleased? Are we happier? Are we uh, more captivated by the promises that the world has to offer us? I think there's a line between our striving and God's already accomplishing. 
Because how many times in Scripture are we instructed to keep our eyes on Jesus, keep our eyes on his eternal inheritance? How many times are we told to hear and obey God's commands, to rest in his sovereignty? And yet the Bible also tells us over and over again that ultimately it is God who holds us. And I was thinking about this when I was walking with Zoe across the road recently. She's at that very enjoyable age of individualism and independence. And so crossing the road is a painful experience. As we cross like a 15-metre section of road, I must have told her 50 times to hold my hand, but at the end of the day, I'm holding hers much more tightly. I'm the one who will ensure that she doesn't let go that she's not going to be in danger. Scripture is full of telling us to keep our eyes, our hearts fixed on God, to be holy as he is holy, to trust him, to rest in him, to uh, have God as our sufficiency. But ultimately, we're all so self-aware to understand that we do not perfectly hold on to God. We need God to perfectly hold on to us. It's a weak comparison, the story I just told but a helpful one to understand that we are being held by God. The other little analogy that hit my mind is we've got a whole bunch of new babies across our church and you've seen those tiny little baby arms try to cling on to their, their parents to hold themselves up, but we know that if we were to let go of them, they wouldn't be able to hold on for very long. But these massive arms in comparison to their little arms hold them strong against their parents' chest. Church, that's you and I in the arms of God. We're told to hold on to God, to not chase after the promises of the world, but chase after the promises of God. And yet, we know time and time again, we mess that up. But thanks be to God that he is the one holding us in himself. So today we've considered Caleb's faith, his example of one who did trust God. We've considered Joseph's fear, how those other tribes failed to trust, but Ultimately, this entire section is consumed with the beautiful reality of God's fulfilment. Right throughout our journey through Joshua, we've been met by God fulfilling his promises. Most of the time, we see it in these mighty miracles like the Red Sea or the Jordan River, the Jericho Walls, the sun standing still. But here, we witness God's promises coming to fruition in the monotonous in the tiny details. And we can often get caught out searching for God's mighty miracles and completely miss his basic blessings. For example, just thinking through a regular Sunday morning routine. This morning, my kids ate breakfast. I showered in hot, running water that is clean enough to drink. Our family drove to church this morning in a car, and I partook of heaven's nectar, coffee. (laughs) These are tiny things that we so easily take for granted every single day, but every single one of them is a signpost of God's faithfulness to his people. Every single tiny little detail of our lives is a signpost of God's goodness to us. Often we can be so unimpressed with these basic blessings because we think that God is meant to prove himself to us with mighty miracles. 
And we don't have time to dive into all of these today. So I'm going to give you a bunch of references for homework. All right? This week, be encouraged to go through these references and just be awestruck by God's fulfillment of his promises. Even the little ones that don't seem to have these glorious or momentous moments, maybe we could do this together in our gospel communities this week. Here we go. In chapter 13, look up Joshua's age in verse 1. Again, look in verse 6 about God's promise. In chapter 14, God's promise to Caleb in verses 6 to 12, and also Caleb's age. In chapter 17, God's promise to Zelephahad's daughters. In chapters 18 and 19, try your, bre- your best to read those allotments of the land and see God's fulfillment. In chapter 20, God's promise of justice in the cities of refuge. In chapter 21, God's promise to the tribe of Levi, who wouldn't be allotted land, but would receive their portion as gifts from the other tribes because the allotment of the tribe of Levi, their inheritance or their, uh, their, inheritance or their heritage was the priesthood of the Lord. And ultimately, this whole theme of God's fulfillment shines most brightly in chapter 21, verse 43 to 45, as Mike read for us earlier. Let's go there and read that again. Chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. We see in these last few verses the grandeur of God's fulfillment but we also come face to face with the sad reality of Joseph's fear. Verse 44 says that the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. God had given it, but the people hadn't possessed it. God was true to his promises, but the people did not completely take hold of it. And the author intentionally contrasts Joseph's fear with Caleb's Faith. The author wants his readers, he wants those ancient Israelites, he wants you and me today to be like Caleb. But we are left with the sad reality that we can't trust God how we need to. We are much more like those other tribes than we are like Caleb, often falling for the empty promises of the world. And so thanks be to God that Jesus trusted God perfectly on our behalf. You know, in being reminded of God's fulfillment to his promises in Joshua, we are encouraged to hold fast to God's promises of inheritance through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through to 14, the Apostle Paul lays out this beautiful picture of our inheritance, not an inheritance that we have earned for ourselves, but which Christ did one that has been gifted to those who are now in Jesus. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we're going to wrap up our time together this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, reading verse 3 through to 11. Paul writing, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because in Jesus, he has given us redemption through his blood. Jesus died on the cross in our place, the death that we deserve for our sins. And Christ's death means the forgiveness for our sins. And all of this was done to perfectly fulfill God's, the purpose of his will to the praise of God's glory. Continue reading verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Because of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection, church, we have obtained an inheritance. And this is really important to understand. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to do what I plan to do, but I was going to teach you all some Greek this morning. Um, so I know a lot of you are like, phew, don't have, to, don't have to do that. But we are going to come back to it one day. You will learn this Greek word. It will help you in how you read your Bible, how you understand what God has done for you and I in the gospel. But let me break this down really, really quickly. That sentence, we have obtained an inheritance, is one verb in the Greek. Uh, it's this most incredible verb. It's a, a passive verb that means that we, as the recipients, we passively receive it. We don't do anything to obtain it. We are gifted it. Um, and it's a plural verb. It's a we have obtained together. The church of Jesus Christ has being gifted this gift together and that uh, the, um, the noun that is being based out of uh, for inheritance uh, is also used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, to translate those words from the Hebrew to the Greek and what's really cool is it's the same word that's used in this section of Joshua to talk about the allotment of the inheritance of the land for the people. There's this incredible tie between these chapters in Joshua and what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1. It's the same sort of um, word and same sort of concept that God has created something, he has gifted it and now you and I get to receive it purely as a gift and God is the one as we read just then in Ephesians who has sealed that promise that inheritance to you and I through his Holy Spirit it's not even on you and I to make sure that we inherit that inheritance because God has given it to us through his Holy Spirit church this is the gospel the gospel is that you and I do not deserve any of this and yet God in his love and mercy and grace gives it completely and freely and then he understands our inability to even keep it so he gifts us his Holy Spirit who is the promised one who will, uh, who's the guarantee of the promise that he's given to us. Church, we, all we have to do is receive 
the gift of God's love and mercy. His Holy Spirit seals that guarantee for you and I. It should be taking our minds back to that analogy of, yeah, we're, we're told to hold on to God, but ultimately, church, God is holding on to us. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that all of your word is good for our learning, good for our encouragement, good for our training, for our rebuking, for our teaching, good to make us completely into the men and women that you have called us to be. We thank you even for texts like ours this morning in Joshua, which can be very monotonous and difficult for us to read, but we're so thankful for the uh, realities of what it means for God's people, that it is an incredible signpost of your faithfulness to your promises, that you did not fail in any of your promises to the people. And though we fail to perfectly possess those promises, thank you that you have given us Jesus, that you sent your one and only Son to die on that cross in our place, to be raised to life victorious, to... Uh, Give us the life that we could not live by ourselves. And Father, thank you that you have given us this inheritance, this inheritance of being made right with you, an inheritance of being brought into right relationship with you and the inheritance of spending eternity with you. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the sign and seal. You are the guarantee of that promise from our Father in heaven to us. And thank you that you are working from the inside out the reality of that promise and inheritance. That even right now, while we live in this world of the already but not yet, thank you that you are uh, teaching us and training us how to live in that promise. Heavenly Father, keep pointing our hearts and our minds to your sufficiency, to the fullness of your promises that we would not be distracted by the empty promises of the world's inheritance, that we'd find such sufficiency and satisfaction in your inheritance, Father. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au dot au